If you want to grab your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. So glad you're here with us on this Easter Sunday. John chapter 1. When Amanda and I lived in northern England, we would take these drives into the countryside. We didn't live in a big metropolitan area, and so 15 or 20 minutes, you were uh, on the English countryside, and it really is just as beautiful as it looks in books and on uh, PBS programs. And so uh, we would go out there and drive because there would be all these quaint English villages with cobblestone roads that are, you know, thousands of years old. We get impressed here with like hundreds of years old, but there they don't even blink at hundreds of years old. They have thousand-year-old villages that no one's even ever heard of with these old, you know, brick farmhouses and we would drive around out there in the countryside in our Nissan Micra. You've never heard of a Nissan Micra because it's too small to get into the United States of America. It's like a Toyota Camry if they jammed it together and then just left it. That's what it kind of looks like. It was kind of this weird humpback, hunchback situation and we were not super proud uh, to drive it. That's another reason that they don't let it into America. It's super ugly. Uh, It gets good gas mileage but at some point you're like, I'd rather spend the money and look good than to save the dollars, you know. Uh, But that's what we had over there, and that was cool over there. And so we would drive our Nissan Micra all around the countryside, and it was lambing season when we were there. I never heard of lambing season, but it's a real thing. And uh, there would be all these little little lambs on these little farms, and you would see them running around the fields. I mean, it really, really, really was like in a movie. It was amazing. And, you know, I don't know about you. Maybe you have lambs in your backyard. You grow them, and you know what a lambing season is. But, but how, we were just blown away by the, like these little tiny lambs. You know, we've seen goats, but goats are not near as cool and, and awesome as lambs. And there were these lambs that were so amazing. But when the lambs would turn around, when you would get kind of a look at both sides of them, all of the lambs would have spray-painted red marks all over them, which is weird. So we went home, and we looked it up, like, what are the red marks all about? And they're identification tags. It identifies uh, which family that that lamb is from and uh, potentially who owned that lamb, the farmer's mark. And so they were all identified. They were amazing with the red marks, not quite as amazing, but it was identification marks. This is whose lamb it was, and this is the family that this lamb came from. You know, you don't have to get uh, too many pages into the scripture before you see your very first lamb. The story of Cain and Abel, the very first brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. You remember that story? Uh, They would bring God's sacrifices because God is worthy. And and they would bring their worship in the form of a sacrifice to God. And and Cain, he would bring his leftover crops because he was a farmer. He wouldn't bring the best. He would bring kind of the leftovers, the stuff that wasn't good to eat. And, And then Abel, the younger brother, he would bring the very firstborn lamb. And offer it to God. And his sacrifice was received by God and welcomed by God. You fast forward into the book of Exodus. You've got the nine plagues going on. God is delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he's brought these plagues on the Egyptians because the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has hardened his heart. And so God is proving to him that God is real and that he is not God. And and so the tenth plague, the final plague, was that the angel of death was going to come through the land of Egypt. And kill all the firstborn sons. But God gave the Israelites a way out. He prescribed to them a way for this to not happen to them. They would sacrifice a lamb and they would take that lamb's blood and they would paint it on their doorposts. And if the angel of death found that blood on the doorposts, the blood of the lamb, then he would pass 
on by, and that's exactly what happened. You fast forward a little bit further, God is living with the children of Israel out in the wilderness. He has rescued them from slavery. And so he's out there and he's living among them, but God has rules and God has ways. If you're going to live with God, then you have to order your life in a certain way because he's not like us. He's unique. He's holy. And and so they would bring these sacrifices to God and they would offer them there in the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt among them. And they would bring all kinds of different sacrifices But they would bring a a lamb sacrifice to atone for their sin. When they had sinned, when they had messed up, they would bring a lamb sacrifice to atone for it. They would sacrifice a lamb when they wanted to offer a thanks offering. You've ever had one of those moments when your your heart is just filled with gratitude towards God? Well, they would too. And they would bring a lamb to offer to God as as a thank you for all that he had done and all that he had been for them. They would offer a free will offering, which just is one of those moments where you know that you should, you should offer your worship to God, you want to, there's a desire there, and so they would offer this lamb for a free will offering. If you were a leper and you were somehow cleansed from your leprosy, you received healing, and you wanted to be readmitted back into the community, then you would sacrifice a lamb at the tabernacle and in the temple. And then every year, God had the Israelites celebrate that passing over of the angel of death through a holiday called Passover, and every year, the same moment, the same weekend as Jesus' death and resurrection, the lambs would be sacrificed in the temple to remember how God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So you get to John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus is just beginning his earthly ministry. John the Baptist is receiving people to be baptized. And this is what it says in verse 20. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if we had not just gone through the Old Testament, that may have just kind of washed over you. Like, oh, Lamb of God, that seems like a nice metaphor. But when you see what lambs were used for in the Scripture, it takes on a whole new meaning. Lambs don't just show up in the Bible for no purpose. They're usually sacrificed. So when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, that means something. Who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God, an identification marker set apart. He's the only begotten of the Father. And so with this Lamb, let's read the crucifixion and the resurrection story. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus has been arrested and he's been tried multiple times. Pilate, the governor of Rome, in charge of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, is getting ready to sentence Jesus. Verse 24, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So Pilate, if you read history, he's one of the most vicious, vindictive, violent men who has ever lived, who has ever reigned in any way. And even this man does not want to crucify Jesus because he believes that Jesus is innocent. And so he washes his hands of the whole thing. Now, really what he's saying is, I'm not guilty of this, but he is guilty of this because he is the only one who can say yes 
or no to Jesus' crucifixion. So he is guilty. He just doesn't believe he's as guilty as the Jewish people who are clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion. So he tries to wash his hands of the whole thing. But you can't wash away your own guilt. It's impossible. Verse 25, So all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary trying to usher in the kingdom of God through violence and force against the Roman Empire. And so he had recently been arrested. And Pilate had this tradition where at the Passover holiday he would release one of the Jewish prisoners. And you remember, he he offers Jesus and they say, no, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus is beaten. He's given over to this scourging, which was a whip a wooden, with a wooden handle. At the end of that wooden handle would have been multiple lashes. At the end of those lashes would have been bits of metal and bone. So when they went to whip Jesus, it would have wrapped around his skin and those bits of metal and bone would have embedded themselves into Jesus' flesh. And when they, when they ripped it away, the flesh would have also been torn. Many people did not survive this beating as the Romans gave it out. But Jesus did. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. That could have been up to 600 men. Now that seems excessive. What they've done is they've called every active on-duty person, uh, a soldier on duty, and they've said, come back to the governor's palace, our kind of headquarters. We're going to do something that you're going to want to be a part of. This was totally uncommon. This didn't happen to, you know, normal criminals. People were being crucified and beaten by the Roman Empire all the time. Why would the whole battalion come to participate in Jesus? Because Jesus has this gravity about him that no one else who has ever lived or will ever live has. Jesus is polarizing. You either love him or hate him. You can only be ambivalent about him for so long before he makes you choose a side. There's no explanation historically for why the Romans would gather their whole battalion other than Jesus just seemed like the kind of person that you would gather a whole battalion before to mock. Because that's what they do. Verse 28, And they stripped him, And put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. So Jesus had claimed to be King of the Jews. He had claimed to be the Messiah. And so now they're mocking him. And what does every king need? Well, they go and get a scarlet robe to put on him because that's the kind of things that kings wear. Remember, his flesh has been torn. He's beaten. He's bloody as they put the robe on him. What does a king need? A king needs a crown. So they find a thorn bush. And they take those thorns and they fashion it in a circle. And they jam it on Jesus' head. What does a king need? A king needs a scepter. And so they find a reed, a stick. And they put it in his hands. And one by one or group by group, they kneel down before Jesus and they say, Hail king of the Jews. They get up, they spit in his face, they punch him in the face, then they take that stick and they hit him in the head, driving those thorns down deeper into his head. Verse 31, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, 
and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Part of the punishment of a Roman crucifixion was that you had to carry your own cross. But you remember Jesus has been up now for more than 24 hours. He's endured the brutality of the night, starting with that anguished prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, trial after trial, beating after beating. Now he's been, you know, scourged and, and whipped and mocked, and he just doesn't have the strength to carry that cross outside of Jerusalem and then back up onto the hill where they're going to crucify him. And so people were lined up along the sides of the street to see what was happening, and, and the Romans They forced this man, Simon, who was from Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya, uh, northern Africa, who was probably a Jewish man who was coming to Jerusalem to celebrate um, the Passover, just as Jesus and his disciples were. They forced him to help Jesus carry his cross. Verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Golgotha is Aramaic word. It means place of the skull. You've heard of Calvary. Calvary, We've even mentioned it. That's a Latin version of the same word. And they, they hang him up and they offer him wine mixed with gall. That was a, the one act of mercy that the Romans would offer during crucifixion. It was a strong drink, a bitter drink to take the edge off of what was happening. It didn't eliminate the pain, but it just... It just took the edge off of it a little bit. And the scripture says that Jesus tastes it and he realizes what it is and he spits it out. I think he spits it out because he knows what is happening on the cross as he is bearing the full weight of the sin of the world. That our sin, yours and I's, it has to be taken away from us. And so he is not taking the easy way out. If the full measure has to be given if the whole cup has to be drank. And he's going to drink the whole thing without any shortcut. Verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, every person who was crucified would get that placard, get that indictment, uh, get that charge placed on the top of their cross. So if you were a thief, it would say thief. If you were a murderer, it would say murderer. Jesus says king of the Jews. That's what he's being punished for. That's what he's being killed for. Because to the Romans, that was treason. Only Caesar was king. And to the Jewish people, that was blasphemy because Jesus was saying that he was the Messiah and they did not believe that he was the Messiah. It says in verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Wagging their heads, it was one of their culture's signs of contempt. Every culture has uh, signs of contempt. And this was theirs. These passers-bys passers are, are mocking Jesus because probably Jesus was crucified on a hill that was next to a a well-traveled road. The Romans would often do that because they wanted everyone to know coming in and out of Jerusalem, Rome rules this city. It may be Jerusalem, it may be Zion, it may be the city of God, but Rome is in charge here. And if you disobey and if you cause trouble, this is what will happen to you. They wanted everybody coming into the city to see that. And so these people who are passing by, they're, they're mocking Jesus 
but not just them. It says in verse 40, And saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So you've got all these people mocking. You've got the passers-by mocking. You've got the chief priests mocking. You even have the two criminals on the other sides of Jesus mocking him. And what are they saying? Hey, if you're who they say, if you are who you said you are, and all these other people said you are, then surely you can come down off the cross on your own. See, they think it's weakness and a lack of authority that is keeping Jesus on the cross. But the truth is, is it's not weakness, it's resolve that keeps him there. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few pages before this, Jesus is being rested and Peter, one of his disciples, pulls out a sword and starts swinging. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you think that at any moment I could call down a legion of angels to come and protect me? We remember back in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua where Jesus appears pre-incarnate to Joshua right before the battle of Jericho and Jesus comes as the commander of the Lord's army. Jesus has more than enough authority to get himself off the cross. It's not weakness that keeps him there. It's resolve. He knows what has to happen. And so that strength is what keeps him there. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 22. What does it mean that God has forsaken Jesus? Seems like the last person that he would forsake would be his own son, Jesus, who never sinned against him. What what does it mean? Well, you remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying with great anguish. In fact, he's praying with such anguish that he's sweating drops of blood. And what does he pray? He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Meaning, if there's another way to redeem humanity, if there's another way to take away the sin of the world, let's do it the other way. Let this cup pass from me. Don't make me drink from it. But then he says those powerful words, but not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will be done. What is happening when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is God is letting his will be done. My daughter Annabeth recently turned four. And when you turn four, your doctor's office gives you a birthday present of four shots. Uh, I don't know if you've had a shot recently. Um, They don't look that painful when someone else is getting them, but when you get them, they're super painful. I had to get a shot just a few weeks ago, and so I was well acquainted with their sting. And and so we go to the doctor for Annabeth's four-year checkup where she's going to get these four shots. And the doctor, who's a very sweet, kind of mild, soft-spoken lady, she says, um, I hate these appointments, these four-year-old appointments. And so I schedule all of them for at, at the end of the day so I can do the checkup part, and then I can go home because I don't want 
want to be here for you know what is coming. And I thought that was kind of odd. Like even a doctor, you know, would think that this is such a horrific experience that she has to go home early. And (laughs) so they do the checkup and everything is great. And the doctor leaves, just like she said, she was true to her word. And so the nurse goes and, you know, gets the shots prepared. And this is when we have to tell Annabeth because we have not told her what is coming. We're going to sneak it up on her at the last minute, as all good parents do. (laughs) And so we say to Annabeth, hey, uh, sweetheart, uh, you're going to have to get shots, uh, just a few, four. And and it's going to sting a little bit. It's going to hurt just a little bit. It's going to be a little bit, a bit of a bit of a pinch, but you're going to be fine. It's, it's medicine. It's going to help you. It's going to keep you from getting sick. Your brother had to do this when he turned four. And listen, he didn't cry at all. He was amazing, which is true. He didn't cry at all. I think he bit his tongue in half, but he didn't cry, which every man knows in here. That's what you would rather do. You'd rather bite your tongue off than cry in public. And so, uh, you know, Jackson did it. And, you know, and then we started listing out all her little friends who had already had it. And it's going to be fine. And we're going to do this. And we're going to take you to Target afterwards. And you're going to get a sticker from the, the doctor. It's going to be great. And she's encouraged. We give her a little bunny rabbit. And, and we're ready for this. The nurse comes back in with the, you know, the syringes on the, the tray, which is kind of like, don't, seriously, on a tray, like it's something to be proud of, you know. <laughs> like put them in your back pocket or something, you know. Sneak those out at the last minute. But when Annabeth sees her walk in with the shots on her metal tray, you can see all the strength and resolve draining out of Annabeth's face. And so the nurse says, okay, lay her down. And, uh, and so we lay her down, and it was go time for Annabeth. She started screaming like I've never heard in my whole life. There was people who awoke from surgery at the <laughs> hospital next door from her screams. It was horrific in every way, and she... She had not even started yet. She was just, you know, wiping it off with the little little alcohol thing. And, and my job as a dad, my job was to lay on her chest and hold her there. And she's just screaming. I mean, like I've never seen her scream. Just wailing. And my job is to let it happen. Because that's what had Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now remember, Jesus, he's God, yes, God in flesh, 100% God, shared essence, God, God from God, light from light, yes, but he was 100% humanity just like you and I. And so imagine yourself on the cross, knowing that there was somebody who could rescue you. There was somebody who could make it stop. And his humanity is crying out, where are you? But it's the Father's job to let it happen. Because this is what had to happen. And then look what happens next. They say in verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Elijah is similar, Eliah, to Eli, Eli. And, and so they're just mocking him. Elijah was believed to 
uh, come back to introduce the Messiah to Israel. Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years, but there was just common belief that he was going to kind of resurrect or come back and, and let Israel know, hey, this is the Messiah. And then Elijah was going to accompany and assist the Messiah for a few months. There was that com- kind of common belief. But here they're just mocking Jesus. Oh, finally, now at the end, maybe Elijah is going to come. Verse 48, and at one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. That was probably the common wine of the Roman soldiers who were there. And put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So imagine this, men. Jesus has been up for 24 hours beaten within an inch of his life, mocked, crucified, suffocating on the cross. And he gathers himself for one final moment. And he lets out a shout with a loud voice. Jesus doesn't just whimper on into death. Now, this is John chapter 10, verse 18, when Jesus said to his disciples that no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down, and I lay it down on my own accord. So we don't want to give too much credit to the Romans today, and we don't want to give too much credit to the Jewish people today. We want to give a lot of the credit, the lion's share of credit, to the Lion of Judah who let out a roar as his final moment of life in this world. I mean, that's somebody that I want to follow who can stare death in the face and say, no one's going to drag me there. I'll lay my life down on my own accord. And he yields up his spirit. Verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That was a curtain that kept the the holiest, most sanctified part of the temple separate from the places most other people were allowed to go, and it rips from the top to the bottom, one of the other gospels say, and meaning now the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the activity of God is now available to everyone. You don't have to be a special priest. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. See, humanity doesn't know what's happening here. At Jesus' death, but nature does. And nature gives up its dead. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Mary of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of sons of Zebedee. We also know from the other gospels that Jesus' own mother was there because he spoke to her from the cross. You know, one of the questions I have after reading this and seeing it with a fresh set of eyes is, was it all necessary? I mean, it seems a little excessive. Yes, it was necessary. Because we can't pretend to be Pilate and wash away our own sin, our own guilt, 
We need a lamb to be slain to take it from us. And that's what happened. But then it goes on, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret disciple, one of the other gospels tell us. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of Israel, and he didn't want to go public with his faith in Jesus because of what it might cost him. But now he's willing to go public. And he went to Pilate, verse 58, and asked for the body of Jesus. And and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone at the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. And the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal it, steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. See, even the religious leaders, they, they knew if people started to believe that Jesus has been raised, had been raised from the dead, that they couldn't stop the movement that would happen. And Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They would have gone to the tomb. They would have strapped some cords or some rope across the rock and put some wax or some clay on it and then stamped their official seal on it. So everyone would know that this is property of the Roman Empire. This is the property of the religious leaders. And they would be able to tell if somebody had tampered with it because the seal would have been broken. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Some of the other gospels let us know a few of the other ladies who had been there when Jesus died was also there that day. Imagine what they're thinking, these women. I mean, they were there when when they saw Jesus killed and, and they were there when Joseph wrapped him in the linen cloth. But the Sabbath was coming Friday at sunset and and they weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so they had to hurry and quickly get Jesus down off the cross and put him in the tomb before the sun went down. And so now they're coming back at the very first opportunity, the very first break of dawn on Sunday morning when they're allowed to work again, they're going to prepare Jesus for permanent burial. And they had seen him die. But imagine how they prepared themselves to see his body again. The wounds now hardened. What's he going to look like? What's it going to be like? And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and he came and he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. There are all these earthquakes. When you read the scripture, 
often when God is getting ready to make a serious declaration, there is an earthquake. When he descends down onto Mount Sinai to give the law, the rules, his decree, his way to the Israelites, it says there's an earthquake. When he's getting ready to to speak clearly and directly to the prophet Elijah, there's an earthquake. The psalmist describing God's rescue says that his rescue starts with an earthquake. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is telling his disciples the signs of his return. And he says there's going to be all these earthquakes. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 says that when Jesus returns to this earth again, He's going to land on the Mount of Olives right outside the city of Jerusalem. And when he lands, the mountain is going to split into two. What the Bible shows us is that the earth's foundations cannot handle the arrival and the declarations of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And an announcement is being made on Easter Sunday. A declaration is being made. The whole world thought that there was a period on the end of the sentence on Friday, but God is getting ready to speak again. And the earth can't handle the vibration and the force of His voice. If you're a guest today, and it's been a long time since you've been to church, I can't speak for every other church in this city, but I can speak for the group and the family of believers here. We have not come to celebrate today the memory of a dead man or to replicate a religion that was handed down to us thousands of years ago. We have come to celebrate the one who when he speaks, the earth cannot withhold its vibrations and its movements. We believe that these things are real. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, in his appearance, the angel was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus Jesus met them and said greetings, which is like saying good morning. Hey, good morning. You sleep good? Good morning. And they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And we can't get into the minds of these women, but we can speculate. What do you think it was that drove them to their feet to cling to his feet to worship him? What do you think it was? 
I, I think it was, there's no way to know this. I, I just think this is what I would be thinking if I were there that morning. Man, I knew it. I knew it. I, I think Mary Magdalene, I, I think she was saying, I, I believed in you. I, I believed in you that, that very first moment that I saw clearly after you had casted all those demons out of me. I was a crazy person. I was a wreck. I was, I was, I was disaster. And you saw me and you touched me and, and you, you released me and you gave me freedom. And as soon as my whole eyes, uh, healthy eyes, clear-minded eyes saw you, Jesus, I knew and I believed. But then Friday happened and you were dead and I saw you dead. And so I doubted yesterday. I, I thought maybe I was wrong, but now that I see you, I, I, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And I love that the angel gives them instructions to go to Galilee, which would have been a three or four or five day journey. But it's like Jesus can't wait that long. I mean, the angel had just given him the instructions and they don't even get out of the garden. They don't even get out of the cemetery before he's like, hey, good morning. I love it that he was as excited to see them as they were to see him. They're gonna do the same thing with the disciples because it says in verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. But he's not going to be able to wait till Galilee to show himself to the disciples either. Right now, at this very moment, they're gathered in this upper room, terrified and unbelieving. And he's going to walk right into the middle of the room and say, good morning, peace. This is Jesus. The story of Jesus is, it's a story of sacrifice. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sacrificed his life. His story is a story of sacrifice, but his story is also a story of victory. Because it wasn't a period at the end of the sentence on Friday. There was a new sentence coming and the new sentence says, he is risen. He's alive forevermore and to understand Jesus you have to understand these two things that he has sacrificed for you but he has won he is victorious I want to end this morning by all of us turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5 so we can see these two things next to each other this paradox of sacrifice and victory. The book of Revelation is a, is a vision that the Apostle John gets of the things that are to come, of heaven, of eternal life, the end of the world. And this is what he sees in that vision, Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor 
and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy to receive all the blessing and all the honor and all the strength and all the might and all the glory and all the fame. This is Jesus. Always sacrificing. Always victorious. And as his followers, we carry those same things too. We take the name of the resurrected Son of God to our city by sacrificing, by bending our knees before the world to serve in the same way that Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet at the Last Supper. But we serve and we sacrifice not to earn victory, but because of victory, because his resurrection is our resurrection while we were still sinners, the Lamb of God took away our sin. This is Jesus. And if you today say, well, I didn't know that was the Jesus. Like, I didn't know that was Jesus. I thought Jesus was like a church Jesus. And I thought Jesus was like a humble teacher Jesus. Or I thought Jesus was like a political party Jesus. Or I thought Jesus was just another among many religions. But if you see Jesus clearly today and you want to give him your life, you want him to take away your sin, it's possible. Romans 3.23 says that your sin needs to be taken away because it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I, we can't be Pilate today. We can't just wash our hands of our own guilt and pretend like it didn't happen or that somebody else's guilt is bigger than our guilt or, you know, the things that they've done wrong are way worse than the things that we've done wrong. We can't um, look at our guilt and say, well, that's not really guilt. That's just the way I am. That's just the way my culture is. That's the way everybody is. That's the way I was born. No, guilt is guilt. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, what are you going to do with your guilt? going to spend your whole life trying to scrub it off. Maybe thinking coming to church, being around people who don't seem as guilty as you will somehow alleviate your guilt or start trying to do things that you'll get credit for to kind of undo some of that guilt. What are you going to do with your guilt and sin? The lamb has come to take it away. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Eternal death everlasting on into the future death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you need to be saved, if you need the lamb to take away your sin, then call on the name of the Lord. Won't you bow your heads with me? And just a spirit of prayer, our prayer ministry team is going to come and take their places up here in front as they do every week. 
if you're ready to call on Jesus and give your life to him. There's no better Sunday than on Easter Sunday, his Sunday. And pray this with me, Jesus, I believe that you are the lamb of God and I need you to take away my sin. I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. I believe in your death and your resurrection. Save me from my sin. And if you prayed that with me this morning, just in a still, in a spirit of prayer, you can know that God has heard your prayer and he has answered your prayer. In the same way that Jesus has been resurrected, you too have been resurrected. You've gone from death to life in Jesus' name.